Welcome to episode 5 of the Poem Goal Podcast. My name is James Carew, co-editor of Pogba Gold website and magazine. You're listening to the fifth edition of the podcast accompanying the release of our brand new issue six. On Pogba Gold, we look at football culture from Ireland and around the world, stories that go beyond what happens on the pitch, exploring the multi-layered impact of the beautiful game, the people's game. Issue 6 is now available to order from pogmagold.bigcartel.com. 64 pages where football meets design with writers, photographers and artists from Ireland and across the globe. On today's episode, we're joined once again by the author of another feature article from Issue 6 of the magazine and we'll be diving into the piece shortly. But today my guest co-host is Taylor Gill, who appeared on episode 1 of the podcast. Taylor works in media relations in London and is a former print journalist. He's a fan of Good Coffee, The Office and Portsmouth FC. He's also the author of the article Training Day from the magazine, which looks at a training exercise at Old Trafford, which resulted in a bomb scare and mass evacuation of the stadium. You can toggle back and find episode one wherever you get your pods. We're on SoundCloud, Google Pods, Spotify and YouTube. Welcome back, Taylor. Is it the UK office or the US version? Definitely the UK version. Thanks for having me back, James. Yeah, I like the US version, but uh, the UK is just unbelievably good. So as we're recording, both Ireland and the UK are emerging from the second lockdown. And in Britain especially, this is hopefully allowing for a limited amount of supporters to return to sporting events. So what's your thoughts on that, Taylor? I think it's a good move symbolically to get fans back in the stadium. I'm looking forward to them switching off the fake fan noise and listening to the scant crowds they're going to have. I kind of, I'm interested in the debate about um, alcohol and singing because as a Portsmouth fan, um, you, you may know, but we have this super fan at Portsmouth called John Westwood. His full name is actually... John Anthony Portsmouth Football Club Westwood. Um, <laughs> but he wears a big blue wig and a big blue hat and he's got a bell that you hear at every Portsmouth home game. And I think if they invite him back into the stadium, I'm not sure they're going to be able to stop him singing. So I'm looking forward to that debate. Yeah, I bet. So our guest today is Ryan Kilban, a writer from Dublin who has contributed to the Pogue McGall website. He also reports on League of Ireland football for extratime.ie and is the author of our issue 6 feature Stasi Links and Energy Drinks, How Reunification in 1990 Affected Football in East Germany. Welcome to the Pogue McGall podcast, Ryan. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me, lads. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me for the magazine as well. No worries. It's great to have you involved. First question, you probably get this all the time. Are you related to Kevin Kilban? Um, no, not not directly, but we are both our families come from the same part of the world. So it's Ackle Island over in um just off the coast of Galway. Right. Um but that's going back 
generations and generations so uh it's probably some link somewhere um i used to always uh reply to his tweets calling him dad and he uh, <laughs> didn't he didn't like that and i'm and was persistent that i i was too old to be his son so that, that got a bit of fun out of that but uh no not not no no direct relation well as we've done with the previous podcast just start off with just asking you how you got involved in football or what kind of sparked your interest I suppose really just always, you know, like as long as I can remember, I've always been into it. Um, Dad was a big, uh, still is a big massive football fan, like family are all really, really into football. So um, was playing it from a really young age as well. Um, Supporting from a really young age as well, you know, so um, uh, Dad used to bring, my dad used to bring us to, you know, Ireland games and League of Ireland games as well, you know, even if we weren't directly supporting the team at the time, but I was kind of going to League of Ireland games at the age of like six, seven, eight, maybe a little bit older, but yeah, which unfortunately isn't the norm in, in Ireland, as you just know, so um, yeah, just always going to games, always playing, um, played at a decent level as a teenager, so played for Crumlin United mainly, I uh, was lucky enough, I had a couple of trials as well with UK clubs too, wow. so likes of Q- QPR, Forest, Plymouth Argyle, when they were in the championship as well, so um, yeah, just always playing, always interested in it. Uh, stopped when I was about nineteen or so, uh, but never really like stopped watching it or anything. And uh, yeah, a few years after that, just just tried my hand at a bit of writing, and yeah, it's kind of where I bumped bumped into you guys. So you came, you're quite close to making it as a professional in England, maybe. Um, maybe yeah. I to be honest, I don't think I wouldn't have would have been good enough. But that I'm I'm kind of fine with that. Like I think I got I that was my max level. You know, a couple of trials here and there. We won quite a lot at, at domestic level and. Uh, six or seven, about six of the lads on my team signed pro deals with clubs as well. So um, yeah, it's, it was it was great times. Look, thinking back on it, but um, probably wasn't good enough to go and get a contract. But yeah, geez, great experience and played with some good players. Yeah. What position did you play? What sort of player were you? Uh, so I was played as a striker. Um, generally played as like the highest man. So not wouldn't say like kind of like not not massive in stature but sort of like good touch for a big man type of thing like <laughs> um that yeah that kind of role and then we, we generally had number 10s playing off me then yeah and you're a shamrock rovers fan big shamrock rovers fan um cause i only live up the road from as well so it's, it's really simple you know i live about 10 minutes from the stadium uh started going before tala a uh, year or two before tala um and then when when they got the move, it was handy. He was able to just go at my leisure every week. But um, but been going to League of Ireland and Ireland games from you know since I, since I was a kid, really. You know, of course, this is their invincible season, so a great achievement for them. And having three players in the last Ireland squad with Jack Byrne, I was saying to you off airs, almost the best player in the squad at the minute. Yeah, exactly. So um, I suppose you know you see a bit online. There's a bit about this season having an asterisk beside it, and you know I suppose it sort of does in a sense that it wasn't a full season, but um, yeah, great achievement by Rovers. You know, um, I think um, being able to, especially a lot of stuff off to the pitch that they're doing as well. You know, they're setting up the academy up in Roadstone as well. So it's it's not really like in previous generations with League of Ireland clubs where they might dominate the first team you know Rovers are doing a lot of clever work off it and around the pitch so perhaps even if they lose Jack Bourne you know they might be in a position where they can promote someone in a year or two's time he might he might fill that for free you know um, so yeah good on and off the pitch really at the moment for Rovers no complaints I love to have a, an outside perspective on the League of Ireland Taylor and I'll put you on the spot a little bit but 
in Ireland, we can be hypercritical of our own league. And for example, having a domestic player in the national squad, would a lot of naysayers would say it's a sign of the decline of the national team. To get your perspective, does the League of Ireland ever cross your radar or would you just consider having a domestic player in the national squad as par for the course? Yeah, I definitely think it was par for the course to have a domestic player in the national team. It's weird. Uh, you said off air that it's like 30 years or something since that's happened and that is really odd. I mean, as for the League of Ireland, it uh, sorry lads, but it, it never it never crosses my radar in the same way that lots of other, you know, international leagues, you know, that aren't the top leagues cross my radar don't cross my radar. So um yeah, but I mean, hearing hearing you guys talk about it with such passion is 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 really nice. And like podcasts like this, I th- I just think are, are great for that sort of stuff. Yeah, so like Ryan would be an example of what typically happened in Ireland, where a talented youngster would probably go over as a teenager, mm. and that has all kinds of which we could get into another day with Ryan about kind of homesickness and what level you're at with the players over there. But the players you will be familiar with in the Irish team, like. James McLean, Seamus Coleman, these kind of players came through the League of Ireland. So it's it's grown in standard. You probably agree, uh, Ryan. It's grown in standard. And now players like Jack Byrne are in the squad on merit. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, Jack's like sort of the poster boy for that Irish thing of going over as a young player and not making it initially and then coming back. And it's good that he now has decent platform with Rovers you know players didn't maybe in the 90s and 80s didn't have that it could always be better but it, it's it seems to be going in the right direction so now he can he can come back kind of you know go back to living at home something, something as simple as that you know playing a team where the, the players kind of not wouldn't say based around them but you know it, it kind of is in a way and you can you know win a league go and beat and get an Ireland cap and play well against AC Milan as well, you know, in, in in Europe, which, you know, you couldn't do if you were playing for a championship club or something like that, you know. The iron curtain between East Germany and West Berlin has come tumbling down. East Germany announced today it is opening its borders, allowing its citizens to go anywhere they wish. Magdeburg, Lokomotiv Leipzig and Dynamo Berlin all plummeted down the divisions. I'm worried that there's no place for my club in reunited Germany. Yes, Union Berlin go to Bundesliga for the very first time. Until 2009, the club was playing in the fifth tier of German football and was known as SSV Mackranstedt. This is Leipzig. Here in Germany, everyone hates Leipzig. So, on a weekly basis, you cover League of Ireland football for extratime.ie, but for the magazine, you turned your attention to Germany, and in particular, East Germany. Yeah, so I was just sort of mainly about the reunification and how it sort of knocked back the East German clubs in maybe like a generation or two. Um, you know, East Germany, it, what for the most part, it was relatively successful, although they were quite inward looking. You know, their team's done quite well in, in Europe, considering the size of the country at the time. Uh, but then after reunification which um was as they go was it was a very successful one socially you know i think a lot of the eastern german citizens were, were happy enough to with the reunification one of the main things that suffered was football really and uh, a lot of the really historic clubs are 
have never really reached them heights again you know if a lot of them are still languishing and you know third and fourth division so um yeah i just thought just thought it was an interesting time in history and you know we, i think with people who are into football we sort of generally view these things through football if, if possible you know i'm not a historian or anything like that so um yeah it was just uh just thought it was an interesting time and wanted to look into it and right up until the modern day with with the modern east german clubs too so in your article, you referenced that the Oberliga or the Oberliga predated the Bundesliga by 17 years. And uh, you mentioned in it about the kind of naivety of some clubs when they were integrated into the Bundesliga in terms of transfers and that type of thing. Yeah, so it does does, does predate it, which I thought was kind of an interesting bit of information. You know, um, you would assume the Bundesliga, but it had different reincarnations and the Oberliga was actually before it. So there, a lot of things went against us. Maybe just to go into a, some more specifics about the reunification. They didn't integrate them, the teams evenly after the last Oberliga season in 1990 they had a two plus six or six plus two rule so only the top two from the Oberliga which at that time happened to be Hansa Rostock and Dinamo Dresden went into the Bundesliga uh, two more then went into the second division and then the rest were just kind of scattered the third and fourth uh, so that's automatically a disadvantage for those clubs then to just sort of elaborate you, you mentioned about um they weren't able to compete financially either so a lot of the players were leaving they were getting picked up for on the cheap as well and they didn't really after having grown up in you know communist east germany they weren't really used to free market practices and uh there's one particular example i think i gave in in the article which which i, I couldn't really believe actually when i read it uh, it was the so matthias sammer um who goes on to be the ballon d'or winner and he won champions leagues and he won euro 96 as well so like you know a serious player he in 1990 he transfers from dinamo dresden into Stuttgart and uh, as part of the deal it's you know uh, small, uh, not like a nominal fee but as part of the deal uh, Dinamo Dresden were given a team bus and you know they were happy enough with that they, they agreed the deal but then after Sammer left Stuttgart he signed for Inter Milan a couple of years later uh, they then came back and they took the bus back from uh, Dinamo Dresden and the, the sporting director is actually quoted in, in one of the one of the main books that I was researching and he said we had never heard of a lease agreement yeah. Um, so yeah it just gives you an example of some of the challenges that, that they faced. I love the idea that a team bus is part of a transfer deal that's just an amazing little nugget of information just, just going back to the two plus six uh idea what what was the rationale behind that um i don't think there was rationale exactly uh that's just what they decided um they they maybe like it wasn't as strong as the bundesliga like that's totally fair to say but i it, it there was no reason as to why those numbers they just decided to have put two and then two in the second division or sorry two and then six in the second division and then the rest uh, in the lower leagues and um, i don't think there was a reason as such that's just how they viewed the the east league i suppose you mentioned in the article how the, the communist regime was wary of football and wary of crowds of people who perhaps weren't members of the communist party but they allowed football to continue elsewhere in this edition we have stories from north korea and croatia when it was part of the former yugoslavia where the regimes would crack down on football or control football almost using clubs and national teams as propaganda and you mentioned in your piece about bfc dynamo and how they were called the crooked champions 
Yeah, so it was certainly the same in East Germany. You know, one thing that I read was certainly because football culture predated the state by quite a lot and it was quite established. They were wary of it, but they let it exist like as much as possible. So it did exist and there would still be thousands of people going to games. But um, yeah, they were certainly wary of it. So BFC, they're like the main example. They're kind of like the almost like the the main team of this year if you like if in a storied sense and in terms of how much they won so they, they won 10 league titles in a row from 1978 up until would have been 88 and so they got got the name crooked champions because they were backed by the stasi obviously all the teams in east germany were you know linked to some form of some form of business um, and similar to you know dinamo moscow and dinamo let's say tbilisi uh dinamo is the term for the police so they, they were the stasi team um there's an interesting story as well so in, in the lead up to when the uh to when they won the 10 in a row so before that they uh dinamo dresden had been the most successful team of the preceding years so i think they might have won three in a row in the 70s something like that and they had a bit of a rivalry and it was allegedly said at one of their games when dresden played bfc that Eric Meikle, you know, the, the boss of the Stasi, he went in afterwards and said, apparently said to, to the Dresden players, he was like, guys, you need to understand this. The capital city needs a champion team. And then Dresden won that year, but, but then BFC then won 10 years in a row after that. So uh, it seemed that they didn't like the regional teams being as successful and they thought it was better for the regime as such if, you know, if, if a East Berlin team team was winning. Uh, there was a couple of uh, things that they looked into, if you like independent reports, and it was discovered in one that they had gained about, on a, about eight points one year from refereeing decisions. Um, one of the main books I looked into when researching this is a book by a guy called Alan McDougall, a Scottish, I think he's a lecturer actually, so his stuff was excellent on this if anyone wants further reading. He came to the conclusion seemingly that it wasn't, it might not have been as official that they were threatened in a way to, uh, you know, favour BFC, but it would have been more sort of an unsaid rule that you would be looked on favourably and maybe given you know, preferential treatment in terms of travel and visas, you know, if you helped the party line and you, you uh, you know, you helped the state and that meant by helping BFC. So, um, yeah, it was, cer- it was certainly prevalent in its own way in East Germany. Uh, and th- there was people that was against it. And also as well in, in that book, Alan McDougall talks about how the anti-BFC movement throughout the uh, 70s and 80s was actually the most unifying movement in the whole of East Germany on any culture. So, um, yeah, certainly had a had its own uh, in comparison to you know you mentioned north korea and that so you would have had its own uh, version of that for sure yeah you mentioned in the piece that um the authoritarian regime would have been wary of football what do, what do you think it is about football that would have aroused that suspicion is it the tribal nature or what do you think yeah, I think so. Um, it also the fact that the clubs predated the regime in some cases as well, and um, attracted a lot of young people too. Um, and yet, perhaps the tribal nature of it, as in they weren't all pulling in one direction. You know, if Dresden were playing Leipzig or if Leipzig were playing uh, uh, BFC, yeah, it, it would have 
kind of it kind of goes against the communist ethos in a sense it did there i didn't find tons and tons of information on that but um yeah that certainly will be that they would be the main reasons you mentioned leipzig and you also chart in the article the struggles in the intervening years for the eastern teams to make a mark and to reach the bundesliga the leipzig story is an interesting one basically they're backed by red bull and you also have the comparison with union berlin yeah certainly so i think like the RB Leipzig stuff's probably well documented at this point. Um, it, it sort of is just uh, backed by Red Bull. You know, they didn't really exist until about 2011 in any real sense. Kind of going back as well, if you find stuff about some of the other um, Leipzig clubs as well while I was researching it. Leipzig, for most people, in a footballing sense, only really came uh, you know, came to people's consciousness in the last few years. But um, like Leipzig was actually where the German Football Association was founded in 1900 so it does have a fairly storied history and they still have you know clubs like Lokomotiv Leipzig and Kemi Leipzig as well like they have a pretty good rivalry too and their former you know Lokomotiv would be the train workers team and uh, Kemi would be the chemical plants team so they're, they're still going at in, in the lower leagues so going back to the Red Bull you know the fact that happens to be them in union at the moment in the bundesliga i think it's a good example of how east germany is now fully like assimilated into you know modern football you know two more two more different teams you probably couldn't find really at the moment and now the kind of ultra capitalist i suppose if you like uh rb leipzig and then union who were a trade union team set up in berlin for uh, basically the working class people because uh, other than that you know the only teams were Stasi backed BFC and there was also an army team in Berlin so a real contrast you know and I think it's sort of the, the fact that those two happen to just be in and they're the only two uh, it does mean that like it shows that East Germany's now fully assimilated uh, but it's also worth noticing as well that even though they're both doing quite well, they're only like I think there's only been five or six East German teams that have played in the Bundesliga since you know reunification. So they probably still are underrepresented, but it seems to be moving you know in a more modern way. The Matthias Sammer is an interesting one. We featured him in a previous edition of the magazine. Kind of came to symbolise a reunification, really, in that he was playing with East Germany, then was player of the year, sorry, player of the tournament at Euro 96 and won the Ballon d'Or. So in that sense, East Germany national team had quite a storied history, but the reunification has certainly helped the national team. Yeah, certainly. Um, so Sammer is a good example of that. He actually moved into football administration roles as well in the German Football Association. And it seems that he, he's, you know, with Germany had that big DAS reboot thing in the 90s. He was he was involved in that and he seemed to think bring a lot of the east german coaching uh skills and like setups that they would have used so a merger of the two really is what has gotten them really where they are and you know winning the world cup and that he's certainly interesting like some of the other big players as well like tony cruz east german um Michael Ballack, East German as well. So uh, there was also a lot of unfortunate players as well. Something I came across. So although Sammer's career straddled the two eras, there's examples of uh, East German players that were trying to defect to the West, and it sometimes sometimes they successfully did. Um, and but because if they had been capped for East Germany, then they weren't allowed to play for the West purely just because of FIFA rulings as well, because they were capped from one country and then weren't able to obviously cap again for another. So um, yeah. I'll 
although Sammer was a success story, there was people before him that, yeah, done the same thing, but uh, unfortunately, because of the politics of it, weren't able to have a, as good a career. What what did the German national team look like after unification in terms of players from the East, players from the West? Like You've talked a lot about clubs and obviously your piece, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, but what what about the German national team? The two main ones, I think, or three would have been Sammer, um, Stefan Freund, who played in who played for Spurs, I believe, and also Andreas Tom as well. So they were, I think, the three main ones. Uh, I lived in Germany for a time. I worked for the Bundesliga for their media team, and speaking with colleagues there, I think it was a two thousand six World Cup that they hosted, and the Germans were the ones who really kicked off the fan fests that became part of every subsequent tournament World Cup and Euros and it was remarked in that tournament that it was the first time ordinary Germans felt comfortable flying the national flag which I thought was very interesting when you look at their history that it had taken so long um, obviously you're trying to integrate the East as well to to uh, play under one banner I happened to live there when they won the World Cup in 2014 and you wouldn't see flags on the street up until the semi-finals time. So I was at work and I was asking a colleague who said, surely you can't wait until tonight's game. And this was in the morning and typical German, he said, well, it's quite a ways away yet. It's like, Any other country on the day of a World Cup semi-final, I know for sure I wouldn't be in work. I was just going to say, yeah, you probably wouldn't even be in work to begin with somewhere else. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that is interesting. Like the Germans, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on this, but the seams that they sort of are quite they do revise their history quite well and they're they're fairly well informed as opposed to some other countries so yeah that is sort of surprising that maybe 2006 would have been a bit later than i thought i'd be interested to get both of your thoughts i don't know if you've experienced game in germany or looking out looking at it from the outside what your thoughts on it are yeah haven't actually unfortunately so been a couple of times. I went been in Berlin twice, but didn't didn't get to a game. Um, I suppose they're sort of held up as it's sort of the best around, really, isn't it? You know, uh, cheap enough tickets, good fan atmosphere, kind of drinking, uh, drink a beer in in the stadium, which does not luxury we have here at League of Ireland, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, really really keen to go. You know, when when all this kind of blows over, one one thing I've heard like it's like a slight criticism, but it's something that I've noticed in recent times with people mentioning. Obviously, the ultras tend to sing all the way throughout the game but don't really react to you know specific incidents in the game like a goal or a tackle or a free kick i've heard people say that a lot of them a lot of fans in from other countries don't like that actually that it seems a bit forced and unauthentic so i'd be kind of curious as to what you might think about just that point i think the ultras are brilliant in terms of atmosphere watching in i'd be in the camp that you need to react to what's happening on the on the pitch. I've been in Lansdowne Road, and I don't want to criticise the singing section there, but I've you can't we've, we've, well, there, there's there's singing, and we've hit the post, and the yeah. singing just doesn't deviate. It's like, come on, lads, let's react to the react to the game. But uh, Taylor, have you experienced? games in Germany or looking at it from the outside and being an Englishman Germany being great rivals No I haven't experienced a a German game and I I miss the I mean you talk there about the fans singing all the way through the game I I miss the Champions League games where the Dortmund fans are just sort of relentlessly singing all game I I kind of miss that Um, and yeah it must must be weird and I can understand the criticism of of people for that approach to a game it's more like a rave or something than an actual like a spectacle um but yeah i miss that i'm looking forward to that coming back 
Yeah, I was just going to say, and just on what Taylor said there, like I think one of the best things about um, the Champions League and Europa League nights is getting to see uh, you know, TIFOs and displays, and especially when some of the European clubs come to... Because obviously in Ireland, we, 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 we I do watch a bit of European football, but you do generally mainly watch Ireland and, the, and England. So it, it is great to see, you know, those TIFOs and those mad fans in what can sometimes be, you know, quite corporate stadiums, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Clown and uh, Arsenal a couple of years ago comes to mind. And I think that's one of the one of the, one of the great things about the Champions League and Europa. It's a brilliant article, Ryan. I, uh, I love how you've brought it to life. And to sing the praises as we do of the magazine, it's illustrated by a designer based in Belgrade called Slavomir Stojanovic. This is the whole idea of the magazine. We have an Irish author talking about football in East Germany with a Belgrade graphic designer. Yeah, brilliant. I haven't actually seen that yet, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's that, that's that's the beauty of it, really. I think really international feel to it. Thanks a million for joining us, Ryan. Yeah, no worries, lads. Thanks a lot for having me. And to you, Taylor, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, James, and congratulations on the piece, Ryan. It's a great piece. And that's it for the latest episode of the Pokemon Gold podcast. Listen out for future editions with more guests who've contributed stories, art, photography and more to both the magazine and website. Follow us on social media at Pogmagol and for more features like this, order your copy of the brand new issue 6 from pogmagol.bigcartel.com. Join us next time on the Pogmagol podcast.